वसुदेवसुतमचाणुरमर्दनम देवकी परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गुरु All right, so we are studying the fifth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, and um, we had done verse number six, and we were entering verse number seven. In verse number six, we saw—is that right? Verse number we done verses four, five, six last time, right? Sanyasas tu mahabaho dukham apnu aptum ayogata. So. The choice of, if I want to realize God, if I want to be enlightened, so why not give up everything else and make a one-pointed effort? No, no need for samsara, the family and job, and just give it all up and study, meditate, pray, and become enlightened. Why not do that? A monastic life will enable me to do that. So Sri Krishna here he says that. Without this, without sufficient preparation, if the body mind are not prepared, then just thinking that I can live like that, it's not that easy. Dukkham aptum. It's very difficult to lead uh, an ideal monastic life unless the mind is prepared. That's why in Advaita Vedanta also they talk about the entry conditions, the viveka, vairagya. All the teaching will become beneficial if the entry conditions are there. In monastic life, also there are certain entry conditions. Otherwise, what will happen is, I gave many examples last time, in the last class, that um, the great, the big problem will be the great spirit with which you set out. That I will realize God in this very life itself. Suddenly, to your astonishment, you will find, and to your dismay, you will find that spirit itself is diminishing and disappearing. Um, because of the hardship, because of the deprivation, all those problems come, and then this. Uh, so, without the inner spirit, there is no use uh, putting on uh, a special uh, colored cloth and shaving your head and staying in a mountain cave. Uh, it it doesn't work. But when the mind is purified, yoga yukta munir brahma. Um, when the sage with the purified mind, the purification is done through karma yoga. Which is what Krishna is recommending to Arjuna. So, if the mind is purified, one can follow the path of jnana, of the path of knowledge, in the householder life or in the monastic life. Both will work. Without the purified mind, neither in the householder life nor in the monastic life, it will not work. It will not lead to enlightenment. And the further danger in the monastic life is that uh, so the, all the supports of householder life are withdrawn. All the engagements are withdrawn. You think of uh, the all the activities and the engagements in the householder life as obstructions, as a burden, but they are also supports. And they give meaning and purpose to your life. There are people you have to take care of. There are jobs that have to be done. There are responsibilities. And this is a good training. It's a good discipline. That is why when uh, novices join ashrams, a lot of responsibility is given. A lot of structure is given to them. If you so the the structure imposed by parents and and school or college, you leave all that and suddenly become a monk. You think you're running away from it? Not at all. Even more difficult structure will be imposed upon you immediately, and that's really good. It's good for it's good for even for mental health. Also, it's good. 
I remember this monk, uh, he told me, uh, he's a remarkable, a senior monk, remarkable. He's a scientist, a chemical engineer who worked here in the United States. Um, brilliant, brilliant man. So he became a monk many, many years ago, decades ago. And he said when he was a novice, he joined our uh, order and he was sent to our ashram in Narendrapur, which is a very big educational complex just outside Calcutta, school and college and things like that. And he was a brahmacharya and of course, very highly qualified. Um, so they put him to work in the college, I think. And he had so much work, he grumbled, like most of us, we all did that. He, and he actually wrote a letter to the, um, uh, to the assistant secretary at that time, was um, Atmas who later became the general secretary and finally became the president of the order. Uh, he said, I am working, he complained, I've got so much work, so much responsibilities. I joined the order to study and meditate and pray to realize God. And I've got so much like, you know, I have to correct the papers of the students and day and night I'm engaged in this. And that one line answer came back that you are engaged for 16 hours a day in the service of Sri Sri Ramakrishna. I am delighted to know this and I bless you with all my heart. <laughs> um, in Bengali, it is more formal Bengali, something like, you know, to me, Dine Shologhanta Thakure Sheva Korite Cho, Ar Onno Kishur Junna Shomaya Paite Chona, Iha Janiya Ami Otiba Prashanna Hoi Lamar I am very happy. I'm very uh, happy to know what you have said and uh, I bless you. Then, so up to this is Karma Yoga. Now, what is the result of all this? If one does Karma Yoga and one gets the qualification one is told about, one can become a monk or one can remain in the householder life itself, continue in the householder life itself. Um, but then one is uh, qualified to practice Jnana Yoga uh, and attain enlightenment. So what happens from the seventh verse onwards? A very beautiful description of the final stage of spiritual life and illumination. Uh, number seven. Yoga Yukto Vishuddhatma Vijitatma Jitendriya Sarvabhutatma bhutatma kurvan apinalipyate. So he who is devoted to selfless action, yoga, and pure in mind, whose body and senses are under control, and whose self has become the self of all, is not touched, even though he may be performing work. So, a lot has been said in this seventh verse. Um, what is the preliminary practice? What is the result of that karma yoga? And then uh, Jnana Yoga and uh, Illumination, Enlightenment. What is the nature of that Enlightenment? And then finally, back to the old question. What about activities in the world? See, the whole chapter is that you are spiritual, fine. But what about the activities in the world? In what will they not bind you? And if they will not bind you, then how to perform them? Should you give them up entirely? If you don't give them up, then what is the attitude of the jnani with which you will perform those activities? You are all your duties in the world. So answer to that question is also given from a from an enlightened person's perspective. How does the world look? I mean, how does how do all these responsibilities with which everybody is faced, uh, how do they deal with it? So what is said here? First, 
term used is yoga yukta, literally connected to yoga or practicing yoga or established in yoga. But what yoga is meant here? Karma yoga. Having performed karma yoga. And what is this having performed karma yoga? It is, um, first of all, making up your mind. My goal is God realization. My goal is enlightenment. It's no longer, my goal is no longer to climb the corporate ladder. See, it's a, it's a delicate balance to be performed here. You may still be climbing the corporate ladder. If you are in samsara, so like Arjuna is in samsara, so he's the general of the army. If he's going to do karma yoga, he still has to do exactly the same stuff he was doing earlier. But what's the big difference now? The big difference is earlier he was fighting to win the battle and get the benefits of winning, being the victor in the battle. In the earlier you were doing it for artha and karma, for uh, um, uh, pursuit of pleasure, uh, pursuit of wealth and power and satisfaction in this world, uh, pursuit of dharma, even um, you know, like doing big things, good things in this world. Dharma, artha, karma was the goal. Now your goal becomes moksha, enlightenment, God realization. And yet you're still doing the same thing. This is an important thing to understand. This is what Krishna is again, again and again driving into Arjuna. So this is karma yoga. First of all, I make up my mind. My goal is God realization. Second, then what do I do? I look around all the activities in which I have, which have to be now be performed as my duty. There might be a lot of superficial nonsense in my life, which I can easily eliminate. If my goal is no longer distraction in the world, if my goal is no longer pursuing pleasure or pursuing money, and there's a lot of things I can get rid of. But there are many things I cannot and I should not get rid of. So the obligatory duties you have. If you have, if you hold a job, then you certain duties you have to perform because you are being paid for it. If you hold a position in society, if you have a position in a family, there are certain duties you have to perform and you should perform. The certain good activities like being charitable, like um, self-control, like, uh, uh, you know, the religious activities, the pujas and things like that, one may continue to perform all that, but the goal is now God realization. And so all these activities are now performed in the spirit of worship of God. This is the core of karma yoga. All activities now become puja. Keep the puja paradigm in mind. What is the puja paradigm? Puja means ritualistic worship. What is the ritualistic worship paradigm? Here is the shrine, here is the image or picture which I'm worshipping uh, God through this image or picture. And here are the mantras which I utter, here are the flowers which I offer, here is the food which I offer, the incense. So there's a whole activity and the purpose of that activity is worship of God. The physical activity, verbal activity and mental activity, all... Uh, in the puja, all of these things are present. But the whole thing is, I'm worshipping God. Now Krishna says, here is the great secret of karma yoga. Transform every other action, your so-called secular action, into puja. Whether you're driving a car, cooking food, um, you know, doing an assignment in school, submitting a report in your office, giving a presentation, all of that is like puja. Puja, who's puja? Ishwara puja. The worship of God. Now at the end of puja, what do you get? So we all, there's a very nice way of thinking, thinking about it. At the end of the puja, all the offered food is now distributed as prasada, as the sacred food, as sacramental food. And everybody accepts it 
as the food which has been given to God, now it is prasada for me. At the end of karma, what do you get? At the end of karma, what do we get? Karma phala, the results of karma. So if the karma is a puja, then the karma phala, the results of karma are prasada. It is what I get back from the Lord. I've offered this to the Lord. Now what I get back from the Lord, it, I am no longer judging it. See, the way we judge, when I, when I get food on my plate, we get nice fruits. So uh, I judge uh, that, look, I like the mangoes. I want the mangoes. I don't like the pears. So I don't want the pears. And I want more of this and less of that. All these judgments are there if we want the, want the fruits and we, the whole purpose is to enjoy the fruits. But when the same fruits are prasada, my whole attitude is not that I'm going to, the attitude is, the attention is not on the fruit and I'm going to eat this one, I won't eat that one, I want more of this. No. Whatever comes to me, I accept it as, uh, an of, uh, as the blessings of, of the Lord. It is uh, sacramental food. It has come to me and I'm just filled with devotion to have a, get a little bit of it. Whatever comes to me. It might be a pear, it might be a mango, it might be whatever it is. It is prasada for me. Similarly, earlier in the world, we had very specific things we wanted. We want success in this. We want respect from that person. We want good behavior from others. These are the variety of things we are chasing in the world. Now, whatever the world throws back at us is the result of my puja, is prasada. I will quietly accept it. The good, fine, the bad, I will tolerate it. But it is prasada for me. So this becomes karma yoga. Then. It's a very beautiful concept and very powerful. It will transform my mind. It will purify my mind. Not easy. It will be a struggle. But it will purify my mind. What will be the result? He says, Vishuddhatma. Vijitatma, Jitendriyaha. Vishuddhatma means purification of mind. The result of such karma yoga. Not at the end. As we do more and more, as time goes by, the mind becomes more and more purified. More and more purified, the, the, the um, sign of that is the raga dvesha, the strong likes and dislikes, the strong obsessions with the world, the strong reactions to the world, those will become tempered and less and less. I won't react so sharply to things in the world, whatever happens. I won't react so, um, you know, instantly, so intensely. And even if the little bit of reaction that is there will be unhappiness. They will just bound to happen. We are not enlightened yet, but we can easily overcome it. We regain our, um, you know, our balance. We regain our peace of mind, our serenity very quickly. This is one sign that karma yoga, we are, it's, we are progressing in karma yoga. Depression won't be there. Or even if it comes, it will go away. Anger at others will not be there. Even if it comes, it will diminish and go away. Soon, as soon as it comes, the next moment it is gone. Jealousy at others won't be there. I'm not in the race anymore. I'm not, no, I don't want a bigger house than my neighbor, a better car than my neighbor. No. I'm not in that race anymore. So, all these negative reactions will diminish. Many good, good uh, effects you will see on the mind. Then another word is there, vijitatma. Vijita means controlled or conquered. The word atma has been used twice. So it's very interesting. Atma simply means self. 
So in the ultimate sense, in Advaita Vedanta, when we say Atma, it means um, existence, consciousness, place, the ultimate, the, the pure consciousness. That is the self, which is Brahman, the ultimate reality of the, of the universe. But Atma, in a general sense, it just means the self. So in one sense, the body is Atma. In one sense, the sensory system is Atma. In one sense, the mind itself is the Atma. In whatever way you can take it. You noticed we are doing the Vedanta Sara class and we saw to the, and the answer to the question, who am I? The different philosophers, different thinkers suggest all these things. Who am I? I'm the body. Who am I? I'm the mind. Who am I? I'm the sensory system. I'm the prana. So on. So here, Atma has been used twice. Neither, none of them are in the sense of, um, uh, in, in the first line, none of them are in the sense of the ultimate reality. Vishuddha Atma, purified Atma. Purified Atma here means purified mind. Atma here means mind. Then Vijit Atma, uh, here Atma means body. Body is controlled, mind is purified. Jitendriya, control of senses. The tongue is controlled, especially important. Tongue has double role, taste and talking. So both have to be controlled. And the eyes, very important. Ears, very important. So touch, all these senses are, um, they, they come under control. They don't chase their autonomous likes and dislikes. Each has a tendency, certain kind of, a kind of limited intelligence is there in each of these senses. And they have their own likes and dislikes. And if we are not careful, we'll be dragged along behind these senses. When we are no longer dragged along, strong preferences, I like this food, I don't like that food. Strong likes and dislikes. See, uh, temperature. We, uh, in India, we always felt these countries in Canada or United States are so cold. But no, um, the modern technology has allowed such uh, fine temperature control that... Uh, people here actually get used to a very comfortable temperature. And you have to because it, it is, uh, you know, people in Texas are realizing it can get terribly cold if you don't have temperature control. But what that does is that um, uh, the resistance to fluctuations in temperature is actually much more in India. But there's fluctuations are much less. But still, because there's no protection against um, fluctuations to temperature, you get used to being cold for a while. You get used to being or warm or hot or sweaty, those things you have to take it in stride. So, um, body, senses, mind are under control. The, the result of Karma Yoga is one result is purified mind, senses under control, body is under control. Notice also, as a, just as a sort of implication, why these things are necessary if you want to become a monk. He says this is necessary whether you, whether you become a monk or a householder is necessary. Without this, you cannot go into Jnana Yoga. It will not work. Fine. But if you want to become a monk also, these things are very important. Who will give you food according to your taste? Who will give you a climate-controlled cave in the mountains? So all, all those things you have to put up with. And if you are disturbed too much by that, then meditation is not possible. Prayer is not possible. Study is not possible. Now, the third time uh, Atma is used in this one long term, Sarva Bhuta Bhuta Atma. So, Sarva Bhuta Atma Bhuta Atma. Third or fourth time it is used. Here it is used in the sense of the uh, ultimate reality, Brahman. 
So the word Atma is used again, once again. And it's here is used in the sense of the ultimate reality, Brahman. What is, what is being said here? Once one engages in Jnana Yoga, and, and listen, it is not in the sense of a sequence. Uh, it's not that you do 30 years Karma Yoga, then you go into Jnana Yoga. It all goes together. As right now, for example, we are trying to convert our life into Karma Yoga. And also we are studying the Gita and the Upanishads and Vedanta Sara and all of that thinking about it. So what the knowledge which comes from Jnana Yoga, that realization comes in three stages. Or there are three deeper levels to it. Uh, the first level is, I am not the body-mind. This body-mind, once the body-mind and senses come under control, I am not the body-mind sensory system. I am the witness of it. I am the consciousness. Um, the Drigdrishya Viveka, Panchakosha Viveka, Avasthatraya Viveka, you know, the method of the three stage, the method of the five sheets, method of the seer and the seen. And they are, in all these different ways, we begin to appreciate that I am actually not the body and mind. So long I thought, or I didn't even think. Without thinking, I took it for granted. I am this thing. Now I begin to notice that this is a thing. A thing to whom? To me, the consciousness, to me the awareness. I am not this body, no more than I am the cloth which covers this body. Even more amazing, I am not the sensory system. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, I exist whether I see or hear or smell. Even more amazing, I am not even the mind. My precious thoughts and my memories and my personality, even that's like a cloth which covers the real me. And the real me is not a material body. The real me is not composed of sensations. The real me is not even composed of thoughts and ideas and memories. The real me is impersonal. It's not even a person. I begin to see that. I begin to get freedom from the person. The person is still there. But I begin to see that the essence, the real I, the self, cannot be any of these material objects, cannot be any of these objects. The subject is really a subject. It's in no sense an object. And the spirit is really spirit. It's in no sense material. Everything else, including the mind, is material. How do you define material? These are very simple things in Vedanta. It will be like, even now, it, these are stunning insights for modern consciousness studies. How do you define what is material and what is not material? Very simple. Anything that you can experience as an object, anything that is experienced or in principle can be experienced as this is jada, material, an object to consciousness. This cloth, is it material? It said, yes, you don't need Vedanta to tell us that. But why? I'm giving you the Vedantic principle for deciding whether something is material or not. Yes, it's material because it's an object. I see it. Okay, the body. Is it material? Yes, it's material. Because, of course, it's made of the five elements and all of that. But the Vedantic principle, hold on to the Vedantic principle. Do you see it? Yes. I see it. I touch it. I can smell it. I can taste it. I can even hear the rumbling in my tummy. So the body is material. It's an object. And the breath. I feel it. Breathing in, I feel it. Breathing out, I feel it. I observe it. Therefore, it's an object. And emotions, object. Why? Because 
now the vedantic principle comes into its own glory because uh, if uh, with modern psychology or modern physics or whatever it you can't decide whether emotions are made of matter or what but the vedantic principle holds good absolutely rock solid are you aware of it are you aware of the emotions yes when i'm happy i'm aware that i'm happy i feel happy without feeling happy there's no point in saying i'm happy when i'm miserable i feel it if you feel it it's an object since so material emotions are also material thoughts are material memories are material ideas all these vedantic ideas are material and if you dismiss all of it and there's a blankness if that blankness is an experience as an object that blankness is also material that's the anandamaya kosha you the consciousness are the witness of all of this and see what follows from all of it what follows is an amazing um, consequence all the properties of these material entities the property of the body to age to become diseased to become overweight or to become skinny uh, to become sick they are properties of the body they are not properties of consciousness i am consciousness when the body ages i do not age the body is sick i am not sick i am the observer of the sick body i am the illuminator of the sick body same thing for the mind and the prana when the mind is happy i am not happy the weird way of putting it but i am the witness of the the emotion of happiness if you look at it that way it becomes pretty obvious even depression i am the light of like the sun illuminating the dark cloud i am the sun of consciousness illuminating the dark cloud in the mind so anyway my point is first of all i realize i am not body i am not the prana the senses the mind not the stula sharira not the sukshma sharira not the karana sharira stula sharira gross body sukshma sharira subtle body karana sharira causal body they are all body i am not body neither gross nor subtle nor causal and therefore all the problems which they are of the body and they should be they kept in the body don't make the mistake of imposing them upon yourself the witness consciousness you are free of all of it so tremendous tremendous insight it we need to work on this stay with this this is the first one then the next deeper this thing deepens further you ask the question we have gone through this many time advaita vedanta you know you you deepen the question by asking is there uh, one such consciousness or many such consciousnesses in each body and mind is there a separate consciousness or is it one witness consciousness and advaita vedanta krishna will tell us in the 13th chapter advaita vedanta tells us consciousness is one if you think that there are different selves the different consciousnesses then that is sankhya sankhya philosophy but advaita vedanta says it's one consciousness and there are arguments for that there are ways to understand why it it has to be one consciousness the simple argument it would be that how would you differentiate why would you even say there are different consciousnesses you can easily differentiate bodies you can easily differentiate minds but what would you differentiate why why would consciousness be different then so this is the second stage and one more stage is there the third stage is this one consciousness to which appears the universe the body the prana the senses the mind intellect thoughts feelings even the causal body 
all these things, the material, the object, which appears to consciousness, the subject, are they really separate from consciousness or are they one with consciousness? Notice the, the, the way I'm asking the question, I'm changing it. First we asked, am I separate from this? Am I the body or am I separate from the body? And we came to the understanding, we, you are the subject, the body is an object. You are the seer, the body is a scene. You are clearly separate. I am separate from the body. But now I'm asking the question, uh, is the body separate from you? Is the mind separate from you? Is the world separate from you? From you, you the consciousness. From you the consciousness, whatever is experienced in consciousness, whatever is experienced in consciousness, consciousness is separate from that. But are those objects to consciousness separate from consciousness? In Hindi, the sadhu from whom I heard this, after teaching Drik Drishya Viveka, separation of the seer and the seen, Drik Drishya Viveka, he said, Drashta to Drishya se alag hai, lekin Drishya kya Drashta se alag hai? The seer is separate from the scene. Correct. You are separate. You are not an object. You are not material. You are the spirit. You are consciousness. You are the seer. But that which we separated till now, is it separate, really separate from you, the consciousness? And the answer will be no. All of this is an appearance. The ultimate, the third stage of Advaita Vedanta is all of this is an appearance in consciousness, not separate from consciousness, nothing but consciousness. It just appears to be an object. There's no other way of experiencing. The only way of experiencing means immediately means that there will be a knower and a means of knowledge and an object known. Pramata, Prameya, Pramana. Or to put it even more simply, subject-object. But is the object something separate, a second entity apart from the pure subject? And Advaita's grand conclusion is no. The pure subject alone exists. It appears as its own object. What is this own object? Universe, body, senses, mind, intellect, and the causal body too. So this is the grand conclusion of Advaita Vedanta. When, when Krishna says, Sarva Bhutatma Bhutatma, he's talking about the second stage. The, you are consciousness and you realize you are the same consciousness in all beings. And then what happens? The question about how do you deal with life? So will it all siege, uh, cease finally? People have these wrong conceptions of Advaita Vedanta. I saw somebody written a comment in one of the to one of the lectures on YouTube. So this Advaita, is it against all action? Then I think it's a very negative philosophy. It is not against action. Some people think that, oh, Brahman is against, uh, is not active. Brahman is beyond action. And what happens in Advaita? You realize you are Brahman. Uh, so you will go beyond action. So all action will cease. Everybody will stop working. The economy will collapse. No. Strongly entrenched in the body. When I say, I am Brahman. I think somehow the body is Brahman. And the body will stop working. No. Kurvan napinalipyate. Kurvan means while doing, while active, while intensely active, is not stained, not, uh, not affected by the results, by action and its results. There is one kind of spirituality, and it's very understandable. In initial stages of spiritual life, we want peace. We want peace. 
we are so troubled by the world or by our own thoughts feelings emotions guilt um, frustrations that we want peace troubled by the external world troubled by our own thoughts and feelings we want peace so the way we look for peace is this generally is to shut down everything i don't want to be engaged with the world anymore the moment i say i don't want anything from the world my first reaction is then i don't want to be engaged with the world anymore i don't want a job i don't want to have anything to do with the family and relatives and uh, uh, i don't want to interact with people outside um, i so people think that this person has become very spiritual not to be seen in social circles anymore so we would draw, it's very understandable that's a natural reaction first the we withdraw uh, a kind of withdrawal from activities from society um but that is not what advaita vedanta is talking about that's not the only way that's the yogic way the yogic way is to shut down the world in the ultimate goal will be samadhi although even in patanjali yoga the ultimate goal of samadhi is again knowledge from samadhi arises knowledge but still the method is samadhi so the method of samadhi is to shut down the world my interactions with the world my activities even my mind stop thinking so that's the yogic patanjali yoga approach yoga chitta vritti nirodha cessation of the um, cessation of, of the movements of the mind is yoga but advaita vedanta is not that there is another way the the way of bhakti where you don't shut down the world you connect it all to lord you connect it all to my beloved krishna or my beloved ramakrishna my mother as sri ramakrishna would say my mother is all of this why should i be afraid of anything why should i hate anybody why should i be disturbed by anybody the good and the bad and the ugly all is my um, my divine mother and so it is beautiful i find my lord in everybody in everything and i am only with my lord so i am happy no matter how people behave with me no matter if there are people whom i like people whom i dislike places activities foods liking and dislike that doesn't matter it is all my lord or it belongs to my god so i am happy with it i've seen people like that also they connect everything to their ishta devata to the lord bhakti approach but even that is not advaita approach the advaita approach is that let everything be as it is don't shut it down as in yoga don't even superimpose the idea of god upon it you realize the underlying oneness i am brahman and all of this none of it is different from me the most annoying person is nothing but i alone the um, you know very annoying sound is there somebody was complaining uh, there is so much sound i cannot study now notice i said that notice the sound is in your mind thing is annoying when i feel it is from outside and disturbing me and pulling my attention away but the fact is even without advaita vedanta think about it the sound which you experience you experience in your mind from outside it comes into your ears it's just a wave sound wave and then it becomes neural um, impulses in your auditory nerves then it goes to the brain center from there somehow nobody knows how it jumps into a first person experience in the mind there's a vritti in the mind noise akara vritti vritti in the mind the form of noise and i get annoyed 
why is that drill so making so much noise but i have really no connection with the drill i have connection only with my mind and that mind is nothing but a, like a wave in me the consciousness so advaita vedanta regards everything as you yourself whom are you getting annoyed with whom are you getting angry with whom are you getting jealous with as i vivekananda said whom to blame or whom to praise when blamer and blamed praiser and praised are but one and that one is yourself i really like this which i heard from a sadhu that advait vyavahar ko mitane ke liye nahi hai advaita is not for wiping out vyavahar this transactional world advait aapko vyavahar mein nirbad banata hai advaita makes you nirbad it means infinite limitless in tra- in the transactions of the world you are fearless you are serene you are loving you are understanding you are gentle because there's nothing here that can disturb you because it's only you so this is sarvabhuta bhutatma and then sarvabhutatma bhutatma he says that you are the consciousness in all beings all beings are you actually and therefore while working none of it disturbs you for the further reason that work is at the level of the book level of the body work is at the level of the body work is at the level of the prana of the senses work is at the level of the mind consciousness does not act consciousness only illumines all of this so it is not does not act and is not stained by the action or its results so kurvanna pinalipyate while all activities are going on and why are you saying doing kurvan who is doing ultimately you alone are doing without you the consciousness body and mind would not act and yet you are free of it so this is the magic this is how an enlightened person uh, handles the activities what activities go on all activities will go on of course good dharmika because why the, why the, why the why moral if the enlightened person is not affected by action the enlightened person could do in immoral activities also but notice what was said just before to become enlightened first you need the purification of mind you need the control of the body you need the control of the senses such a person would be unlikely to do anything uh, adharmic uh, evil immoral why not because think about why people do evil actions why people do immoral actions not that people want to be immoral not that people want to be uh, unethical they do it people are unethical or immoral because the results of that they can't resist it it's either fear or temptation either by fear one tells a lie because the result if i tell the truth i might get into trouble so tell a lie that is unethical out of fear not that that person is in love with lying is just in love with cannot resist cannot resist the fear of getting into trouble of telling the truth or the opposite temptation i will get so much money by taking a bribe the person is not in love with taking bribes or being corrupt the person is love so much love with money cannot resist so a uh, people are immoral people are unethical not because they are performing karma yoga i will be immoral for the sake of immorality i don't want anything else out of sheer uh, you know uh, disinterested immorality disinterested unethical activity i don't want anything i don't gain i stand to gain anything it is my worship to be immoral no it is ridiculous nobody ever does that 
So one does that because one cannot control it. It's driven by fear, driven by temptation. One does wrong things. And so when one has purified the mind, when has controlled the body, has controlled the senses, one will no longer be driven by fear or temptation. Therefore, one will not perform immoral activities long before getting enlightenment. After enlightenment, why would such a person be immoral? All activities, true, that neither moral nor immoral actions will taint the consciousness which the enlightened person realizes himself or herself to be. Yeah. What activities go on? Next few verses will tell us. Verse uh, 8 and 9. Basically, everything can go on. This, this wrong idea that uh, why you know, once one becomes enlightened, enlightened, does an enlightened person eat? Somebody complained about me. I'm not, I'm not claiming to be enlightened, by the way. But you complained, this person is not a jnani because jnanis don't talk so much. So he's talking too much. So, let me give some example. Gyanis, one, one gets enlightened. So he has a particular idea of a jnani, of an enlightened person who will sit, sit quietly. Well, I'm saying thank God that, that some jnanis at least talk. Otherwise, we would not have got all these precious teachings. Some jnanis talk and they teach and they uh, put their realization down in the books and give lectures. And so we get all of this. All activities go on. Will a jnani eat? The person is eating. That means can't be a, an enlightened person. So the poor, and, and I, I told you the story of uh, this monk who was in the mountains and he was very austere. He slept with his head on a, on a brick, not a pillow, but a brick. And the village women were going to collect water from the river. And they saw this monk lying down and his head on a brick. And one of the women co commented to, the, uh, to her friends loudly so that the monk would hear. See how addicted he is to comfort. He needs a pillow. And the monk was so affronted that even a brick and these people are criticizing me for it. So he threw away the brick. And immediately the woman commented, look, he's a monk, but he still hasn't overcome anger. <laughs> he's getting angry. Verse number eight and nine. So all activities you will see. Naiva kinchit karo meeti yukto manyeta tatvavit pashyan shrinvan sprishan jighan ashnan gachan swapan shwasan pralapan visrijan grinhan unmishan nimishan api indriyan indriyatheshu vartanta itidharayan the man of selfless action who knows the truth, means who is already enlightened, thinks, I am not doing anything, even while seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, going, sleeping, breathing, speaking, excreting, grasping, and opening and closing the eyelids, believing that the senses rest in the sense objects. Notice, every activity of the sense organs, every activity, of the motor organs. This is sort of indicated here. All activities go on. The enlightened person, tattvavit, um, tattvavit means one who has realized, I am Brahman, aham Brahmasmi, one has realized. Then what does this person see? Sees the same world and sees the body and mind fully active. What is going on? Pashyan, I'm seeing. Seeing is going on. Shrinvan, hearing is going on. 
um, jigran, ashnan, smelling is going on, eating is going on, including tasting. Enlightened person should not taste, no, can taste, it might be indifferent to taste, might not uh, ask for delicious dishes, but can definitely make out. So don't think that I'm inviting an enlightened, enlightened person and I'm going to serve him food, but because he's enlightened, doesn't matter, whatever I serve, he's not going to taste. No, he's going to very much going to taste, may not complain, but it's going to taste. So ashnan, eating, gachan, walking, moving around, going from place to place, can go, why not? The body is there, body can walk. Swapan, can, does the person sleep? Yes, sleeps. Swasan, um, breathing in and out. Pralapan, speaks. So see, I should tell that person, uh, quote from the Gita, enlightened person can speak. So if enlightened person can speak, I can also speak. Then visrijan, uh, excretion. Then Grinhan, accepting things or holding things. Unmission, nimission, down to the blinking of the eyes, opening and closing the eyelids. All those actions are performed just like anybody else and yet not like anybody else. It is the difference. What difference does enlightenment make here? Naiva kinchit karomit is absolutely clear. I, which I? Pure consciousness. I, the illuminer of all actions, do not do any action. It's impossible for me to do any action anyway. I shine upon all of these, the activities and the absence of activities also. When there's no activity, when the mind is shut down, senses are shut down in deep sleep or in samadhi, I shine equally there. I am that one shining everywhere. Naiva kinchit karomiti. All the time. In the midst of all action. There is, no, there is no conflict with action. Now what action will that enlightened one do? Exactly what is designated for that body and mind. So the enlightened one might um, teach Vedanta, might sit in meditation, might uh, feed the poor, might um, you know, have a school or a college might be an activist, um, you know, might, or I've been invited to give a talk about Mahatma Gandhi uh, late, later next month. So might be a, a person, um, you know, uh, fighting for the freedom of a colonized people against uh, the oppressor. But notice, the difference will be, he will not hate the colonizer. Very interesting. He will look upon them equally. I, I remember reading at one place, the Holy Mother, Ma Sharada Devi. Um, so they were, the, uh, you know, the people around her at one time, this was during the British rule in India. So they were complaining about all the atrocities that the British were doing on the Indians and on the colonized. And the mother did not join in the condemnation of the British. I mean, she condemned the atrocities. She had absolutely, uh, she, was, she was very angry with uh, all the atrocities that had been done. But she did not join in, in, the, in the, uh, the condemnation of the British and the hatred of the English. She just said, they too are my children. So th there it is exactly the same. From the, from the enlightened person's perspective, all of them. Even if the person thinks that I am the enemy of this enlightened person, of this whatever, the enlightened person would not think of you, you as the enemy at all. Would think, think of you as exactly the same as the closest friend. Um, I do not do anything. So intense activity at the level of the body and mind 
fully compatible with complete and total peace and serenity. And because consciousness is always the same serene shining, the mind also becomes very peaceful. This is another thing. The mind can be active and yet be, be at peace. The body is fully active and the mind is also active and yet peaceful, not disturbed by actions, not disturbed by the consequences which come by actions. Naiva kinchit karomiti. Yukta, the one who is centered. Mannita tattvavit. Centered in the truth. Who, that person, this is the attitude, the, the uh, attitude of the knower of truth. The one who realizes I am Brahman. Then there is one beautiful verse. I'll just read that and then we'll take the questions. It concludes this topic by saying Brahmanyadhaya karmani sangam tyaktva karotiya lipyate nasapapena padma patram ivam bhasa. The beautiful example is given. You see, he who performs actions dedicating them to the Lord and giving up uh, attachment is not attached, not touched by sin as a lotus leaf by water. So the lotus leaf remains in the water, but the water slides of the lotus leaf. It does not accumulate there. So similarly, karma does not touch the enlightened person. Now here it is said, this translation which I read, dedicating the actions to the Lord. So that's the karma yogi's attitude. That can also be the bhakta's attitude. But brahmani adhaya karmani, the exact term here, from a jnana yoga perspective means being centered in Brahman. And performs all actions. So it is like what we read earlier. Brahmarpanam Brahmahavi Brahmagno Brahmanahutam Brahmevatena Gantabhyam Brahmakarma Samadhina who sees all actions as Brahman and all the accessories of actions, the instruments with which you perform the actions is Brahman. The action itself is Brahman. The ones for whom you perform the action is Brahman. You, the person who is performing the action is Brahman. And of course you are the ultimate reality Brahman itself. All of these, the person, the action, the instruments, the people for whom you are doing action, they are all appearances in Brahman. And one who, whose attitude is this, that person attains Brahman. Attains Brahman means realizes, I am Brahman. So, Brahmanyadhaya Karmani, being centered in Brahman, whose work, who performs all activities, does not cease from activity. Sangam Tyaktva. Uh, giving up all attachment to it. So all attachment is possible. Giving up is possible at two levels. One is at the level of karma yoga. When you are doing all work, you still think of yourself as a person. The karma yogi thinks of oneself as a person. I am this person. This is the body, the mind. I'm trying to realize I am Brahman, but I still have not realized that. And I, am, I think of Brahman as God, the God of the universe, and I'm performing all my actions as worship of God. So in that way, I'm performing actions uh, as a karma yogi. But as a jnana yogi, when I understand my nature as Brahman, then I realize I am Brahman. All the actions are Brahman. Everything and every person I come into contact with in these activities is Brahman. So that becomes Brahman. So that itself is the uh, detachment from action. Sangam Tyaktava means giving up attachment. So giving up attachment can be done in two ways. One is the or the preliminary karma yoga way, I am no longer doing it for my own personal gain. I am doing it as worship, puja. Just as you are not attached 
you don't have personal acts to this flower i'm giving of course one can do puja with full attachment i'm offering this flower and this food and these offerings so i want certain things um, this much money or this much success or this job that is sakama puja but nishkama puja kama puja which is done without any acts to grind any personal motive i offer these flowers and this incense and this food to the lord out of love of my heart this is the way only way i find of adoring you exactly like that i do all work i still think of myself as a person i'm doing all this work as worship offering them to god that is one way of being detached sangam tyaktwa giving up all attachment the higher deeper way of being detached is to see brahman in all activities and that is the deeper way everything is brahman then what will be attached to what there is no need as brahman i do not need anything therefore i am not doing activities for the sake of getting anything all the people i come into contact with all the, they are i am not really coming into contact with them they are all appearances in me in brahman they are all one with me so this is uh, um, what is there in ishopanishad ishavasyam idam sarvam yat kincha jagatyam jagat tena tyaktena bhunjitha magridha kasya swidhanam discover the lord brahman in all beings of the world you find in every activity in every person in every living being every state you find the same same divinity everywhere tena tyaktena that itself is a renunciation that realization itself is renunciation and do not covet anything and shankaracharya comments there do not covet anybody's wealth there is no wealth to be coveted at all because it's all brahman uh like they could go on let's just indicate here for your interest those who have read the isho upanishad the second mantra purvanneve karmani jiji vishetchatakam samaha working in this way alone you can seek to live for a hundred years evam tvai namnyate to asti na karma lipyate nare in this way alone you will be saved from the the you know the stain of karma being caught up in the cycle of karma now shankaracharya gives one inter- interpretation of that he says if you have not realized brahman if you are unable to realize he clearly says those who are unable to realize i am brahman then live your life like this perform um ritualistic worship perform moral ethical action and this is the only way to save yourself from the negative karma bad karma to keep on doing good karma without any desire kurvanneveha karmani but swami vivekananda gives a different interpretation he says that having realized brahman in this way to see brahman everywhere and by that renunciation alone um, you know so the first mantra second mantra is from vivekananda says in is in continuance of the first mantra so here it deviates sharply from shankaracharya's interpretation what shankaracharya has done is in his bhashya ishavasya upanishad he has split it into two one set of mantras at the beginning is the state of agnana yoga and enlightenment i am brahman realizing that and that is clearly described and the rest is the performance of karma yoga to become fit for agnana yoga what swami vivekananda has done is he has interpreted it in one flow so enlightenment first mantra shows what is enlightenment and everything else is a consequence how do you work after enlightenment in this way so uh, like a different interpretation i remember the first time i saw this difference in interpretation 
I was so excited. I took it uh, to a very senior Swami, Swami Prabhanand Ji, who is now the Vice President of the Order. He at that time was General Secretary. I was so excited. I was a young monk, and I said, Swami, look at this. Um, the, the, what Swami Vivekananda is saying and Shankaracharya is saying is very different. He, um, he gave a sort of a smirk and he, he had a way of looking down his, his glasses like that. And he said, I can give you 11 different interpretations. I've come across at least 11 different interpretations of that. Anyway, more of that later. So... <laughs> That's a very interesting uh, Upanishad. It's a small Upanishad, but it's difficult because of these tangles. All right. So, Lipyate nasa pape. Now, so the person is not um, stained by karma. Papa means sin here, bad karma. But from an enlightened person's perspective, bad karma, good karma, both are karma. If you, get, if you are attached to good karma, you will get heaven. And you'll be caught in the cycle of samsara, equally as uh, the persons who have got bad karma. They will go to hell and come back to um, the world to work out their eventual liberation. And if you've got good karma, you'll go to heaven, but you'll still come back again to work out your liberation. So the enlightened person, even the karma yogi, let alone the enlightened person, does not want either good karma or bad karma. Even the karma, they just look at the stages. Um, Bad karma. Nobody wants bad karma. By, by karma, I mean, here I mean the results of the karma. Results of karma because bad karma leads to unhappiness, misery. But people earn bad karma because they cannot, they cannot restrain themselves from doing evil. We talked about it earlier. Fear or temptation. You can't overcome that. And so end up doing what is unconsciously doing unethical things. That's bad karma. And there are, there are others who can restrain themselves. Who are moral, decent, you know, God-fearing people, moral people, good people in the society. That's the backbone of society. And what do they do? They want good karma. So this life will go well and the next life will also go well. So get more punya, more good karma. Do the duties in life as they are exp as expected of you. Um, do good to society, do good to people around you, be charitable, be... Be honest and moral. All of that good karma for what? Not for enlightenment, but for having a good life in this world and the next. And this requires a staunch faith in karma. You see, one sadhu said, you know, he's talking about corruption in India, one monk in, in the north of India. He put it nicely. He said, I've seen this change. Literally, I've seen, I've seen this change in my lifetime. When we were kids in a village in the north of India, I have seen a person being, um, you know, being threatened or tempted to, to bear false witness in court, to say, say something false in court so that some powerful or rich person can win the case. And that poor man refused to do so. He said, I can't tell a lie in court. Why? Because I have a family. We have a family. The whole idea was, if I tell a lie, the consequences will be so bad, people, my family will suffer. And then this monk said, again, fast forward 50 years, in the same village, I've heard a person who went and told a lie in a court. And he was asked, why did you lie? He said, what can I do? I have a family. 
Balbachari. <laughs> What's the difference? The first man has a staunch belief in karma and that uh, if I do immoral things, even if nobody knows about it, uh, I, I will suffer for it. There, there, is, there is justice ultimately. And the person 50 years later, in the same situation, did exactly the opposite thing because of the same, same thing that my family will suffer for want of food or, you know, they will, I need this money now for immediate gains. And the consequences of telling a lie is, makes no difference to this person. It doesn't believe in, as long as I don't get caught, it doesn't believe in karma or anything like that. So this karma, how karma uh, gives rise to uh, ethics and morality is a very clear demonstration. Same thing, two of them said. One said it in defense of um, not telling lies. I have family, I can't tell a lie. And the other one said the same thing in support of telling a lie. I have a family, I have to tell a lie. <laughs> so, lipyate nasa papena padma patram ivambasa. So, that's a second level of karma that uh, people do good things so that they may get a good life here and hereafter. The third level of karma is I want moksha, uh, enlightenment. And to fit, make myself fit for that, I'm doing karma yoga. So the karma I will do as a worship of God, not because I will certainly not do evil things. And I will also not do the good things just because I want the results of those good things. I just want devotion to God. I want purity of mind. I want enlightenment. And after that, after enlightenment, from a Jnana Yoga perspective, karma still goes on. But karma is no longer karma. It, it is Brahman itself. Brahman itself appearing in these forms. In one sense, everything goes on as it was earlier. Sri Ramakrishna tells the story of that after enlightenment, what happens? He tells that there was a clerk who was put in jail for something and then he was released. So he says, will the clerk come out of jail and dance the jig or will he go back to his job? In Bengali, he said, so similarly, after enlightenment, the structure remains the same, but internally it's not the same at all. Uh, it, it's all the difference. You are all the time bathed in the divine radiance of a divine presence. You are that presence itself. Externally, it still remains the same. You know, as he said, breathing and blinking and talking and walking and eating, all of that goes on. All right. Let me just quickly see the question. Before I forget, tomorrow there's a beautiful talk uh, by Swami Sarvadevanandaji, who's the head of our Vedanta Society in Hollywood. He's the head of the Vedanta Society of Southern California. I think the talk is at 7.30. 7.30. You will get the link um, for the talk. Just quickly go through the questions. Sudhirji says, all our experiences of subject-object and deep sleep subject-object merges. So any stage when we experience subject itself or that enlightenment samadhi, Remember, Vedanta, now you should be able to answer this question for yourself. Experience the subject itself. Normally, experience means subject experiences object. 
knower experiences the known with the help of a means of knowledge. Pramata, knower, the I, the subject, experiences prameya, book, the known object, with the help of a pramana. Pramana means a means of knowledge. What is means of knowledge? Eyes, for example. So I am the subject. I am experiencing the object with the help of a means of knowledge, the eyes. Now you are asking, how can I experience the I itself? If I experience the I, the subject experiences itself, then the subject will become an object. You need another subject to experience that object. And to experience that subject, you need another subject to experience that subject. It will become anavastha dosha. That means a regresses ad infinitum. Then is it is the subject entirely unknown then? No. Vedanta says, subject is self-luminous. It is always self-revealed. You don't need to experience it as you experience. See, if you understand this, you are one step away from uh, enlightenment. Just one step away. Why you don't need to experience? Experience means subject-object in that structure. Why you don't need to do that? Do you ever feel, I have to see my face. I can only see it in a mirror or a picture. No, no, no. I have to cut out my face and put it in front. Then I can see it. No. You never feel that. The, re- the reflection is enough. To see the place of um, reflection is enough. So what is the place of reflection for after Atma? For the self? What takes every experience? Pratibodha viditam matam. In every experience you are revealed. Because you are the experiencing consciousness. Whatever you see, light is revealed. Because you are seeing light only. Whatever object I see, it's just reflecting light back to my eyes. How will I see light itself? Uh, Because light is there in a bulb, I can look at it directly. But suppose I could not. Then everything that I'm seeing is light. Because it's light, light being reflected back to me. Everything that you see is yourself. You are seeing the, uh, the, the subject itself, but that requires knowledge. Um, Alpana Chatterjee asks, building on the above, in deep sleep, who registers the absence, awareness of absence of experience and where? Who registers? The Sakshi. Pure consciousness itself registers. But how? Registration and how, where? So that is in uh, Ajnana itself, in the Anandamaya Kosha. Vedanta Sara has explained this actually. If in Vedanta Sara class, Ati sukshma bhi ajnana vritti bhi by the exceptionally subtle movements in ajnana in the, in the anandamaya kosha, the experience of absence in deep sleep is uh, recorded. Prabir Babu asks, Adhyaropapavada? Yes, that is what's going on. Adhyaropapavada. Bill, all, all is experienced by consciousness, but that is not proof that that which is experienced only exists in consciousness. Correct. And therefore, there is a lot of argument, very subtle reasoning. Sankhya would say that um, all that is experienced is by experience by consciousness, but it ex- exists from its own side. It has its own existence. And then consciousness reveals it. So that's the realist way of looking at it. Uh, Sankhya says that. Now, the argument, I will not get into it. It's a long and con- um, sort of very subtle kind of argument. Is to ask the question... So consciousness is experiencing the object. What is the relationship between consciousness and the object? Light can illumine this object. Light is different from the book. And light reflects off the book and can illumine this object. But then light is material. 
The book is also material, and a material light can be reflected off a material book. But consciousness, which is entirely subjective, can it ever come in contact with a real object external to it? It's very interesting. It goes back to that superimposition, desuperimposition. Shankaracharya takes off his Advaita from there itself. How can conscious, how can light come in contact with darkness? Therefore, no matter how counterintuitive it seems, consciousness is not coming in contact with anything else. Just as in dreams, the dreaming mind does not come in contact with the real world. Whatever it comes in contact with, trees and places and people and buildings and roads, uh, it is just the mind itself. And there are arguments to prove this, and pretty interesting arguments. Um, Punita Ji has given one of those arguments. If it exists outside consciousness, who is to prove or disprove its existence? Yes. In uh, uh, Krishna, Vishwanathan says, the third stage of knowing that this universe appears in the self as there is only a single reality sounds like self-awareness. Prakasha Vimarsha, exactly. Uh, no, Prakasha Vimarsha from Tantra is, is like that. Um, consciousness is Prakasha and Tantra says, or Kashmiri Shaivism says, this self-awareness is, uh, is also a real capacity of consciousness. Don't dismiss it as false. But Advaita Vedanta does not accept it. Gloria says, is the main block to realizing the oneness of everything, the fear of loss of individual identity. That is one thing. But you know, not really also. You don't lose individual identity. You become an individual for the first time, really. Before that, you're just a flux. There's really no individual in the body-mind, if you think about it. That's the Buddhistic approach, actually. Charles Chow says to me, self-realization is not only in equanimity, but also in humble acceptance of one's role in this life. Swadharma, which can be linked to Christian concept of will of God. Correct. Surrender. As far as this individual being is concerned, the one result of enlightenment would be surrender, actually. You will have no problems in surrendering to the will of God. Yes, it's a world of appearance. You can say it is vyavaharika, transactional reality, lower reality. Fine, whatever it is. But there would be no more problem in, let this little creature which appears in Maya, let it live, live out its life as best as it can. I know very clearly my life is the infinite. I have no problem at all if this creature dies tomorrow or lives for a hundred years in misery. Nothing, nothing to me really. Swami Ramakrishnanandaji. This is a very interesting um, description of um, this American lady who was a nun who went to India and she saw some of the direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. I think Daya Mata probably. No, um, no I forget her name. Um, Deva Mata. Deva Mata. Yes, you're right. So she writes in one place when she's uh, talking with Swami Ramakrishnanandaji, Shashi Maharaj. He speaks of his uh, great difficulty in. Oh, what is wait? There is a call. Yes. So great difficulty in um, how he 
established the mutt in chennai and uh, uh, you know many struggles in his life and devamata is uh, she says i felt indignant to think that this holy person has gone through so much struggle and suffering why should this holy person suffer so much and when i expressed this she says the swami reacted with surprise and she, he said my real life is infinite let the lord play with this little thing as he will with this little creature as he will very beautiful all right then let us um, are the guest lectures available anywhere to hear later many of the guest lectures which will um, which are uploaded in youtube later on for example the one tomorrow with will upload it but it's uploaded not on a regular basis over a period of weeks or months but do come if you can for the guest lecture tomorrow that is 7:30 our time and 4:30 at uh, in hollywood and pacific time om shanti 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 हरि ओम तत्सत श्री राम कृष्णार्य प्रणमस्तु